Hey y'all, Editor James here. Before the show begins, I wanted to tell you about the Darling Homebody Shopping Network, an annual QVC-style stream I produce where my spouse Nicole sells her merch, art, and creations live on the internet. This year, Thursday, November 30th at 6 p.m. Central Time, we'll be live at Darling Homebody on Twitch, Facebook, and TikTok selling her goods. 20% off everything! There will be games, prizes, extra goodies, and for every $100 made, I'll eat a glob of the Hot Ones Last Dab Pepper X Edition Hot Sauce. Last year, we were so close to making $1,000 in a single stream, so help us smash that goal this year, baby! Head over to DarlingHomebody.com right now to start making a wish list. Follow at DarlingHomebody on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok for full details plus updates. And we'll see you live on November 30th, 6 p.m. Central Time. Now, on to the show. Warning, the following podcast is a shit show, and the individuals you are about to meet are idiots. Their opinions, anecdotes, and advice contain zero nutritional value. This is the critical human condition and all of its strangeness. This is life, according to an idiot. Hi, welcome, everybody. Hello. What's up? How, how are y'all doing today? Wow, that's really interesting. I'm so glad you told me that. It's pretty crazy about what happened to your uncle. Wow. Oh, yeah. Thanks for sharing, though. I can't believe you got into bestiality since the last time we saw you. Right. Crazy. What is that like? Do you see like a groomer instead of hairstyles? You know, don't answer that question. Uh, I don't think I want to know. Yeah. Welcome. Thanks for asking about my day. Uh, it's going well <laughs> because <laughs> we're recording a new episode because you're listening to it. This is According to an Idiot. I am your co-host. Mo. And I am your room temperature corpse, Jeremy. You are going to be listening to an episode all about alchemy. Ooh, potions, bubbling, uh, 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 flasks. <laughs> uh. This ain't Harry Potter. Yeah. This is sex magic. Because we're going to be talking about how alchemy ties into the occult. Yes. Woo, woo, alert. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Uh. This was voted on by our patrons. Yeah. Thank you, patrons. Thank you. For deciding on this for us. But you know what? Here's the thing. One thing I always think about is how alchemy, and we will get into this later. Alchemy, let's try to get this segue rolling. Alchemy made a lot of contributions to the world of medicine. Unintentionally, yeah. Unintentionally. And what is a field of medicine but dentistry? You, that's so right. Yes. Thank you for acknowledging that. Uh, I <laughs> wanted to, uh, this is a segment I wanted to do for this episode. Are you telling me that was a segue and not just a natural flow of conversation? Yeah, I know, right? I, well, you know, that's why they call me the pro. So I don't have it in my segment for like historical things. Mm-hmm. I think we did it before. It was called Time Machine. I think I literally did it one time. I literally don't even remember this so it was like back in the days of like my basement recording uh okay so like when spooky corner yeah when we were still in spook squad spooky corner where spook <laughs> squad i was thinking of science totally forgot where you came from science corner mo totally has forgotten where they came from i am a lost their roots a famous austin comedian now so true i've performed at 
like four open mics. So live and on stage, live and on stage. If you're in Austin, uh, hi, come see me sometime. I don't know. The Mo. The Mo. M-O-E, not M-O. And then your M-O is. <laughs> That's my M-O. So anyways, dentistry, right? Mm-hmm. Let's get back to that. Love them. Let's jump right into, I'm bringing it back. You hear me out. I'm bringing it back. You didn't ask for it. You didn't even know it existed. This is the time machine. I want to talk about the exploding tooth epidemic. What the fuck? This is serious stuff. And watch your fucking language. So in 19th century America, many dentists began receiving alarming complaints from patients who had recently undergone dental work. Their teeth had exploded in their mouths. What? <laughs> I know, right? This is 19th century, so that's 1800s, right? Yeah. I don't know. Why Why is it like that? I don't know. Because it's math only smart people can do? It's like gatekeeping well, for history? Well, is it because the first century... Are we applying Christ into this? Does that work with the centuries? No, it's just the That's the year. like BC and AD, yeah. I think. Yeah. So the centuries are just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do the math because I can't. Um, <laughs> starting in Mercer County, Pennsylvania in 1817, one of the earliest documented cases of this phenomenon was from a reverend who, out of the blue one morning in late August, sensed his right superior canine beginning to ache terribly. As reported in the January 1861 issue of The Dental Cosmos, a monthly record of dental science, the reverend's pain quickly escalated to the point of near insanity. Quote, During his agonies, he ran about here and there, in the vain endeavor to obtain some respite. At one time, boring his head in the ground like an enraged animal, at another, poking it under the corner of the fence, and again going to the spring and plunging his head to the bottom in the cold water, which so alarmed his family that they led him to the cabin and did all in their power to compose him. So this guy has such an insane tooth pain, which honestly, toothaches are like some of the worst pain I've ever felt. It's, yeah. I got fucked up teeth. I have a lot of tooth issues. But so <laughs> I, I've got fucked up British teeth. Jeremy Lore, write it down. This is important to my story. The article goes on to say the reverend was secured in his home where he continued his wild tantrums from the intense tooth pain. The episode lasted through the night and into the morning. Quote, at nine o'clock the next morning, as he was walking the floor in wild delirium, all at once a sharp crack, like a pistol shot, bursting his tooth to fragments, gave him instant relief. So like, if that happens, is it like a blessing or a curse, you think? In that kind of state, I feel like a blessing. Is it a blessing just because there was relief? Yeah. But like your tooth is exploding. But like if you're in that much pain, I think I would prefer an exploded tooth over just dealing with that, you know? I don't know. I mean, back then I feel like people probably valued their teeth less because it was more likely that you would lose them. Right. That's when you like do the George Washington and just make some dentures out of random teeth. Yeah, slave teeth. Yeah, I guess it's a blessing. I think it's more just a, it's terrifying really. Yeah. Because the, the descriptions of it, it's like an insane pressurized shot from the mouth. We're going to get into it, but one person was, I think, deafened by it. Whoa. It was that fucking insane. In my head, what I'm imagining when you say exploded is like, I mean, imagine there's like an infection yeah. or something, yes. right? And that's causing all the pain. And then similar to like maybe a pimple or something, mm -hmm. the infection gets so large, there's, you know, too much fluid that it pops, like it, it pops the cork, so yeah. to speak, and, and the tooth like cracks maybe because this is back in the olden times, their teeth aren't maintained 
as well. So there's more fissures, more weak points yeah. to explode. That's what I'm imagining, and that's uh, disgusting. Well, you're pretty on point. A significant number of these cases occurred. Here's the second case. Letitia D. of Mercer County, Pennsylvania. In 1830, Letitia reported a dental emergency in which a tooth, her superior molar, caused excruciating pain until the tooth suddenly burst apart, which brought immediate relief. The tooth, quote-unquote, crumbled to bits. Gross. In a third case, Anna P. from Mercer County, Pennsylvania. I think all these are in Pennsylvania, which might have some connection there. Yeah, that's interesting. That's weird. Poor water, maybe? The same horrible dentist? Yeah. <laughs> Anna P. from Mercer County, Pennsylvania in 1855. To quote the dental cosmos, this had a simple antero-posterior split. That's dentist talk. Caused by the intense pain and pressure of the inflamed pulp. Ew. The fuck? A sudden, sharp report. An instant relief. She is living and healthy, the mother of a family of fine girls. <laughs> nice. Yeah, she's fine and her girls are fucking hot too. <laughs> While the previous cases all occurred in the same region of Pennsylvania, this medical anomaly was not exclusive to one area or dentist. There are multiple other reports from across America in the 19th century and onward. Another surviving record of dentist J. Phelps Hibbler. They don't make names like they used to. Fibbler? J. Phelps Hibbler. Yeah, that's that's golden. You know, like, that's just, they, we don't have those. That's like a celebrity name. There's so many names where it sounds like you would see it on like a carnival tent. That feels like a, <laughs> like you pick your name, like the moon moon. Yeah, yeah right, moon. right, yeah. <laughs> Random name generator. Right, exactly. So... As I was saying, another surviving record of dentist J. Phelps Hibbler in 1874 recounts his experience with a female patient who was similarly overwhelmed by severe tooth pain. He says, quote, The tooth, a right lower first molar, burst with a concussion and report that well nigh knocked her over, splitting the tooth. Whoa. These cases seem to have stopped sometime after 1925 and are still, for the most part, a mystery. But here are some likely theories. Number one, gas. This is a word, barodontagia, also known as tooth squeeze, is pain in a tooth after pressure change. So you can experience an acute toothache when there's a sudden shift in environmental pressure. Skydivers, mountain climbers, and occupants aboard submarines are at risk of experiencing barodontalgia. And in the context of this story, a botched or incomplete root canal could allow gases to collect within a tooth, causing sensitive tooth pain that could very well result in pressure escaping said tooth and causing it to break or explode. Number two, bad fillings. The exploding teeth epidemic could have been the result of 19th century dentists using a variety of old-timey chemicals to make tooth fillings. They would use like anything for tooth fillings back then, any kind of metal, just like whatever would keep. Two popular ingredients in tooth fillings were tin and lead. What? Andrea Sella, professor of inorganic chemistry at University College London, has argued this theory to be the strongest. He stated that a mixture of metals in a mouth could create spontaneous electrolysis. Quote, my favorite explanation is that if a filling were so badly done so that part of the cavity remained, that would mean the possibility of buildup of hydrogen within a tooth, unquote. They told the BBC in 2016, with accumulated hydrogen, the tooth could explode from the pressure or the filling could be ignited, for example, by lighting a cigarette. What? Which is fucking crazy. You light a cigarette, your tooth explodes. Oh my God. Hydrogen is produced by bacteria inside your teeth also, which is why hydrogen would even be there. Yeah. 
While there is no specific record of these tooth explosion victims having fillings, it's a possibility that electrochemical fillings are to blame. Alternatively, ergot, a fungus that notoriously targets wheat, could be the cause. With ergot being harder to isolate and eliminate in previous centuries, entire yields could become infused with ergot, wheat being a huge part of the American diet, especially then. People could consume food made with contaminated wheat and develop fungal infections, which is kind of closer to what you were saying, mm -hmm. within the mouth that would build up over several months untreated. Theoretically, it would build pressure from the inside, eventually breaking the tooth. So still, there are no definitive answers, but dozens of recorded incidents have been found confirming this strange epidemic. All the ones I was reading, there was one where this lady, her tooth exploded, and it was so loud that she, she lost hearing in her ear. That is fucking insane. Yeah, absurd. Yeah, I feel like... I thought I knew what this was, and now I am not sure. So I wonder, okay, so that this only happened like within the span of 50-ish years, right? Like 50 to 100 years? Yeah. So it's reasonable to assume, because it only happened in this one county, that it was caused by like some terrible dentist. Yeah, that was my first thought. I, I Again, articles that I found, there were references to cases in the west as well mm. but no specific ones in that cosmo magazine that i could find but yeah they were all in pennsylvania it could also be that magazine is like in pennsylvania you know what i mean yeah that's true maybe like it happened other places but they're like why the fuck do we care about your tooth not enough things going on in pennsylvania there never are i have a segment that i would like to to speak on cool yeah also uh, after listening to your your wonderful voice jeremy I felt inspired to include this only on the interwebs <gasps> segment just for you. I worked on it while you were talking. Thank you so much. Only on the interwebs. This is a chat GPT generated love letter from the Mothman to you, <laughs> our very own host. It reads, my dearest Jeremy, I must confess something that's been tormenting my heart. I've watched you from afar, admiring your quirkiness, your lovely laugh, <laughs> your rugged facial hair, and even those wonderfully sweaty hands. Mm -hmm. But I've been paralyzed by the fear that I may never be what you truly need. The thought of never being enough for you terrifies me. Yet, despite this fear, I can't help but imagine a future where we're together. You see, Jeremy, every time I've glimpsed your life, it's like watching a beautiful story unfold. Your quirks and your laughter draw me in. <laughs> I've been haunted by the idea that I may never fit into the narrative you've been writing. Still, I imagine us sharing adventures, holding hands beneath the stars, and living a love that defies all odds. My love for you burns like a relentless flame, and I hope desperately that you can see a place for me in your heart and your future with a heart full of hope and fear mothman wow this is the first i'm hearing of this yeah how do you respond it's it's difficult it's complicated mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there is a lot that you and the public can't see that's going on um obviously every yeah. relationship is, is complicated and it's uh it's an internal venture. It's you can only get so much from reading about us in the tabloids, stuff like that. Right, right. And reading these letters, these personal, intimate 
letters. Uh, one thing I find peculiar is that he is the Mothman, and yet I find myself to be the Moth, attracted to the flame that is our love. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's that light that it's 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 the light that's guiding me home to him. That's the only way I can describe mm-hmm. it. Honestly, my parents do not approve. Yeah, they don't like him at all. And how does your partner feel? Uh, she doesn't need to know about this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. She doesn't need to know about this. Uh, this is all in the down low. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pretty new thing, honestly. Like, like how new? How new are we talking? In the last six months. Okay. All right. You can follow my Tumblr. I, I've kept a blog of it, mm-hmm. along with some really, really obscene photos of us together. Mm, I have to ask. All the all the listeners want to know. Mm-hmm. The Mothman, is he built like a moth or a man? So if I'm being totally honest with you... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He wants to wait till marriage. <gasps> but I can't commit to that. Old fashioned. I was surprised. Wow. I was surprised. He's quite old too. He's very old. And that's yeah. why this I'm so important to him, is because he's been looking so long for someone like me. Um unfortunately wow. I do kind of see him as I hate to say it, but I kind of see him as my side piece. I'm not I was hoping this would be a fast, hot, mm. sweaty sexual endeavor and it's kind of been more i think what he's looking for is a trad wife and i just can't be that for him you're anything but conventional exactly exactly you've always said that yes i'm different i can't wait to hear what happens next on our on our next episode i'm sure we'll probably have another letter i can't wait for him to write again yeah me too wow it's kind of weird that he only talks to you through the podcast yeah through you which is strange right yeah it's like he wants me to know yeah it's maybe he has like some voyeurism. Oh, he's a pervert, absolutely. Is he like? Could I talk to him? In what way? Like in a sexual way. Well, he's fully gay. For he's a man. Well, I'm not binary, so. But again, he's old fashioned, so he doesn't even believe in that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mothman is not an ally. He said that a lot to me. He's like, you need to stop hanging out with that person. What are they? Whatever. <laughs> I'm like, Mothy, come on. That's not, that's not okay. Correct pronouns? Wow. Yes. Well, he calls everybody person. Unintentional ally. Yeah. He's made it abundantly clear he is not an ally. He said some horrible things about <laughs> most non-whites he has a very specific opinion of. Mm. It's iffy. He's kind of a bad boy in that way. It's hot. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, like a part of myself, a large part of myself hates myself. So mm-hmm. this feels like a great way to explore those feelings. Yeah. It's like therapy that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I like this. You just go through the motions and motions and motions and you're not healing. You're just hurting more. But this is perfect. There's something to that. Okay. What you said, the going through the motions and you think it's going to be healing, but it hurts yourself reminds me a lot of cults Ooh. and specifically the occult. Oh, occult? I wish I knew more about it. And also love potions. Hey, woohoo. What could you call that? I think you could call it alchemy. Oh my God. Wait, do you know more about alchemy? I think I might. This is why you got to leave the segues to me, dude. I took that and I ran with it. I just straight to the goalpost. I, I think his- That was called goalpost? I think historically you can go back and check the fucking records. My segues <laughs> have always been iconic. <laughs> Yeah, let's fucking talk about it. Let's let's kick it. Let's let's yeah. talk about potions and structured woo-woo religion. Magical systems. 
sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Transmutation. Part metallurgy, part mythology. It is growth, then decay, then transformation. The Philosopher's Stone. What? It can transform any metal into pure gold. Unbelievable. Fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. We're going to take a cursory glance at alchemy and what it's all about. So I hope you guys don't fall asleep. All right. Count me in. 50. 49. From seven. Uh, seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Waiting for go. <laughs> go. Okay. Alchemy is an ancient study. <laughs> <laughs> Call it speculative philosophy. A proto-science or straight-up magic that concerns transformation. Specifically, the transformation of material substance into substance of greater value. Or even more specifically, the practice of attempting to transform base metals like lead or copper into silver and gold. Wow. But alchemy extends beyond precious metals. Obviously. Obviously, duh. Alchemy is an ancient branch of something called natural philosophy, an early kind of physics that studied the principles and causes of change, movement, or motion of nature, both living and non-living. So it's like uh, dogs and rocks. Mm-hmm. Dogs and rocks. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the, the early chemistry, the early physics before we had yeah. the words chemistry and physics. Right. It was like a mix between science and philosophy where like it wasn't very measured and it was very like, not spiritual, but like... It is like spiritual though. Dirt has good energy in it and that dirt makes plants that have good energy in it it's kind of like witchcraft a little bit yeah yeah it's that kind of science yeah like i'm gonna throw water in this because water is purifying and then salt cleanses things and kind of like going off that like science idea yeah you have like everything every natural substance has a quality like a characteristic yes Natural philosophy survives today chiefly through the uh, surviving works of our homie from the 4th century BC, Aristotle, whose compiled text, Physics, lays out the proto-scientific understanding of the universe across eight books. Natural philosophy was replaced by modern science after the scientific revolution kicked off in around 1543, I think, marking a distinct boundary between the ancient world and our current era of classical physics. Goodbye antiquity. Hello, scientific method. (laughs) Science was no longer philosophical nor metaphysical. It was mechanistic, grounded in mathematics and super boring stuff like accurate measurements and peer review. Ew. Gross. That sounds realistic. (laughs) No, thank you. But before modern science or uh, that time Isaac Newton got domed by a falling apple. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And then he invented math class or something. (laughs) There was uh, mystery and magic masquerading as fact. And rolled up into that burrito of weird history is alchemy. So here are the basics. Hit me. If astrology is concerned with mankind's relationship to the stars, alchemy is concerned with mankind's relationship with terrestrial nature. Mm -hmm. In both archaic practices, man strives to uncover hidden knowledge in a cosmic sense and utilize that knowledge to their benefit. So astrologists decoded meaning from the position of the stars and planetary bodies in the sky By doing that, they were forecasting earthly events before they happened, all for 
typically the purpose of exploitation of personal gain. You know, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. want to know these things so that they can help the king or whoever they work for or maybe themselves. Right. We are human. So we all want money. Mm-hmm. Similarly, alchemists use occult rituals and fringe alchemical formulas to what's called transmute mundane physical elements into products of higher value or things that possessed mystical qualities, also a form of exploitation because you're going to use that to do cool shit. Right. You might touch on this, but I saw this explanation and it made a lot of sense to me because I kind of wondered, right, like why alchemists think that they can transform things. Yeah. What's the thought process behind that? And basically, it's this idea that everything that exists is on a timeline. So if you think of like diamonds are originally like coal, right? But it's ultra pressurized. So you end up with diamonds. Yeah. It's kind of like they apply that principle to everything. So the longer that things exist, they eventually turn into the more valuable end product. So they are trying to work to expedite that process. They feel that if they if they start with this base metal and they apply the right principles, like the right methods, they do the correct steps, they can expedite until it becomes, you know, this thing that maybe wouldn't have happened for like another thousand years. Okay. So it's not necessarily like, it's like magical, but it's not. There is some like mysticism involved, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to turn an apple into an orange. It's I'm going to turn coal into diamonds. Yeah. It's weird to see this logic before we had logic because mm-hmm. it's, it's people grasping to make formulaic sense of everything, but we have no real accurate means of doing anything at all. Exactly. You have like these very broad ideas of like how nature interacts with itself. And it's like, how can I just throw a bunch of shit together and see what happens? Yeah. So alchemy, as we know it, has been traced across time and cultures in the broadest strokes possible. There are a handful of alchemical traditions recorded independently of each other across the centuries. There's three that I'll loosely cover. One is Chinese alchemy and Indian alchemy and then Western alchemy, which originated around the Mediterranean kind of. Mm -hmm. And it moved to Egypt and then the Islamic world and lastly, medieval Europe. Europeans are always the last to get with it. And they typically always make it super gross. Uh, <laughs> and they're always like, we came up with this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is, that's, that's what, honestly, what history is, is like major civilizations coming up with these discoveries and then they crumble. Mm-hmm. And then the the new conquerors through the dust pick up these old manuscripts and go, this is ours now. Okay. Because mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, it was really hard to find like the original alchemists because most of them are incorrectly attributed to certain texts and yes. stuff. They're like, oh, this guy yeah. wrote this. Like, there's no evidence he wrote that. He was just the top dog at the time, so they said he did. Yes. It was probably written by somebody a thousand years previous or by a group of people that just didn't put their name on it. Mm-hmm. So those three factions I just mentioned, the uh, Chinese, Indian, and then Western, throughout the ancient world, they appear uh, to have formed and operated independently, which is kind of strange. I'm not sure how much truth there is to that. While it's theorized that they may have directly influenced one another, there is no conclusive evidence that they share any common origins. So, like, hmm. it's one of those things, again, that kind of just weirdly popped up at the same time. Yeah. Because I think China, especially for a long time, was isolated from the Western world, at least. Right, right. So I'll start with Chinese alchemy. The form of alchemy known broadly as Chinese alchemy flourished throughout East Asia during the 4th or 5th century BCE, although the exact origin is highly contested. 
Two central figures of Chinese alchemy are the ancient Taoist philosopher Lao Tzu. That's, I'm going to go with that, Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu Kazoo. Lao Tzu, who may or may not have been fictional, actually. And, um, <laughs> and then Zhang Ling, a religious leader during the Han Dynasty, credited as the founder of popular Taoist movement known colloquially as the Celestial Masters. Before getting too deep into the weeds, it's important to clarify while Western alchemy and parts of Indian alchemy focus heavily on transmuting metals and creating materials such as gold, the primary goal being wealth. Chinese alchemy seemed to have the ultimate goal of discovering immortality, mm, mm-hmm. which was a thing that existed in all forms of alchemy. But Chinese alchemy, medicine and long life was the main focus, even more so than making metals, although that was still a thing. Yeah. The Chinese philosophy and religion known broadly as Taoism also plays a crucial role in Chinese alchemy. And I'll, I'll give you Taoism according to an idiot. Yes, that's the name of the movie. Taoism is complex, serving as a cultural, intellectual, and religious tradition that has influenced Chinese history and culture from around 500 BCE up to today. As mentioned previously, its founder is considered to be Lao Tzu, a man who we now consider to be a folk legend rather than a flesh and bone messiah. Regardless, Lao Tzu, a name that literally means old master, was a powerful, wise man and record keeper for the emperor until one day, disillusioned by politics and warmongering, Lao Tzu abandoned his post and discarded all material belongings, escaping into the mountains and living as a hermit. Lao Tzu was stopped. This is according to their legend. Yeah. Lao Tzu was stopped by a Chinese guard at the nation's border when he decided to flee. And the guard recognized the famous philosopher. And upon hearing that Lao Tzu was running away, the guard demanded the wise man not be allowed to leave before writing out his greatest bits of knowledge and beliefs onto paper. Before you disappear, I want a record of all the cool shit that you know. Mm-hmm. Latsu complied, summarizing his knowledge into around 5,000 Chinese characters onto paper. In the end, the wise man handed the guard 81 chapters of wisdom and was granted permission to leave, never to be seen again. Whoa. So if you... Th- <laughs> As a person who also has ADHD, mm-hmm. if you like came across this guy... And you're like, hey, I want to know something. And he's like, all right, here's 81 chapters. Have at it. How long would it take you to actually get around to reading those full 81 chapters? I would never read it, but I'd be like, hey, guys, I have this really important manuscript. <laughs> and it's really good. It's re- It's got all the smart stuff in it. Like, it definitely changed my life. <laughs> but like, I would never even open it. <laughs> They'd be like, what's in it? It's like, you got to just read it. You got to read it. Can I read it? No, it's mine. <laughs> Actually, um, I lost it uh, almost immediately. I set it down and I have no idea where I put it. My home is a mess and I figure I'll just clean it whenever I move next. Yeah, I'm really busy. I can't. You can read it (laughs) as long as you promise not to talk about it with me afterwards because I don't, you know, not because I haven't read it, but because I'm busy. (laughs) So this text that Lao Tzu wrote became known as the Tao Te Ching, the central text of what would become Taoism. So the Tao, or the way, is largely impossible to define, at least for somebody like me. (laughs) But the Tao is the way or path and could be a literal path to a destination or the path to enlightenment. Therefore, countless different schools of Tao emerged over time, but a Tao was a particular path to truth or a way to structure society or view the universe. So according to the central text, all things living and non-living are intrinsically connected. And any perceived differences between physical objects are illusions. And the true nature of the universe exists outside of this illusion. Mm, so okay. a pretty common... Matrixy. Exactly. Yeah. 
Taoism promotes general acceptance and openness, a path to harmony with all creation, which can only be reached through detachment from the worldly matters and material desire. You see this all the time with Eastern religions. It's like mm-hmm. being one, being content, being, you know, unbothered by like desires or greed and stuff yeah. like that. Heavy Buddhism coding. Yeah, right. One common practice is what's called non-action, in which a person refuses to react to any form of conflict with aggression or ego. Okay, so like stoicism. Which is, you know, difficult to do, kind of. I mean, not for me, obviously. I'm. Yeah, I was going to say, um, not, not for me. To sum it up clumsily, Taoism emphasizes finding virtue by going with the flow and rejecting stubborn and aggressive attitudes. The most fulfilling life is a simple life, and that indulgence, power, and wealth cause envy, shame, and violence. So that's that's Taoism in a stupid little nutshell. So like the al- the alchemy side of it is like, hey, I want to know how to live forever. And this guy's like, hey, just don't be bothered by things. Just take it easy, man. Go with the flow. Yeah. And he's like, okay, well, that's not really like the potion I wanted, but uh, thanks, I guess. Yeah, I was hoping sure. for a quick, like, I could just drink something. I don't really want to work for this. Mm-hmm. It's like steroids, but for your soul. I want to be upset. It's fun to want to bang and also punch I want to punch walls, you know? I want to punch walls. So some teachings of Taoism contain references to alchemy. And in the days of yore, it was a popular belief among specific groups of Chinese nationals that Lao Tzu, the old master who, I want to stress again, is probably not a real person, had achieved immortality using methods in an alchemical text known as the secret of the golden flower. There are two classes of Eastern alchemy. First is the Nidan or inner alchemy. It's based on doctrines and practices used by Taoists to prolong one's life and create a strengthened spiritual body capable of surviving death. Practices include meditation, gymnastic exercises, Eastern medicine, etc. And I'm going to quote Wikipedia and say, <laughs> um, Nidan is based on allegorically producing elixirs within the endocrine or hormonal system of the practitioner's body. So like you're not doing literal alchemy, you're doing internal alchemy. Which is done through rituals and spiritual practice, taking care of yourself. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense with like the general idea of alchemy of like, you're starting with like a rough base and you're trying to elevate it to its final form. Right. And you're trying to like expedite that process and you're trying to speed it along. If you're following the idea of reincarnation, which a lot of Eastern philosophies and religions have, you know, we'll say that within a hundred lifetimes, you would reach that end enlightenment phase of your soul, whatever. Mm -hmm. But by following these practices, you're able to reach that a lot quicker. Instead of like a hundred lifetimes, you can reach it in this lifetime. Yeah. You know, by following these practices and these methods of alchemy, (gasps) you can do this. Yeah. Well put. Thank you. I have a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Now, on the flip side, Wydon or Outer Alchemy, focuses on creating literal elixirs of immortality by forging minerals, metals, and natural ingredients in like a crucible. Proper conventional alchemy. It's a wizard with a freaking modern pestle and he's making scary juice. Scary juice. Regarding outer (laughs) alchemy, the concoctions were not meant to be consumed literally, at least not all the time. Instead, one common practice was for alchemists to interpret alchemical texts to combine the correct type and mixture of metals and substances, cast that mixture into cups and dishes, usually made of gold or something, and the cups and dishes were said to contain magical qualities that would then be passed on with each use. 
This is literally just like modern witchcraft. Is it? Yeah, they probably put some like metals and shit and tried to drink it and someone died and they're like, okay, we're clearly not supposed to be consuming these, but the magical properties still exist. I mean, that's like what witchcraft is now. Like an example I can think of is like a simmer pot. That's when you have a pot of water and you set it to boil on like a stove. Because it smells good. You put apples in it and stuff, right? Yeah, because it smells good. But there's also, you have the different properties of everything. So citrus is said to be like a clarifying cleansing thing. Bay leaves are said to do like a similar thing. Salt, you know, cleansing, whatever. And you can like add all these different things and you can set your intention. That's an important thing Mm -hmm. of what you're trying to accomplish And through, you know, kind of like a manifestation viewpoint, you can help create an environment that you want, you know. So this is kind of like a similar thing. Like, oh, if I combine XYZ and I know XYZ have these properties and I want this thing to happen, all I have to do is combine them. Bing, bang, boom. I carry it along with me and that's it. Done. And then women got a hold of it and they're like, this is stupid. This is so fucking dumb. Can you believe women believe this shit? Uh, um, <laughs> you women. So in most of these scenarios. <laughs> sorry, sorry if I'm interjecting too so, much. No, no, please. Love it. In most of these scenarios, the user was a noble person or an emperor who employed an alchemist to craft the alchemical gold dishware in this case for them to use, believing that the consistent use of said dishware would extend their life and aid them in their quest for immortality, all the while enacting spiritual rituals until ascending. So I I don't know the full story, but I know that these believed to be magical cups and plates and bowls, whatever, mm-hmm. were part of a more intense ritual that was incorporated with Taoism and stuff like that. Like it, it varied, but like it wasn't just like I'm drinking my root beer with a magic cup. <laughs> it was like I'm doing the dance and I'm doing the meditation and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm wearing the special gemstones and whatever, and I'm drinking out of the cup. It's a whole process. It's a whole process. Due to the use of dangerous metals like lead and mercury, what's called elixir poisoning was a common risk. At least four Chinese emperors died from elixir poisoning, but countless elites suffered non-fatal poisoning like hallucinations and psychosis induced by mercury poisoning. They probably thought it was so fucking cool too. Yeah. It's like their version of shrooms. You gotta take this mercury. Yeah. And they probably at that point were not connecting it to the cups. They're just like, this is terrifying. It must be working. Yeah, exactly. I'm seeing demons. Mm-hmm. While outer alchemy never fully disappeared, its popularity was surpassed by inner alchemy, which was more spiritual in nature and less literally toxic. So while Chinese alchemy changed and developed over the centuries, its broad acceptance fluctuated with one emperor making a decree in 144 BCE ordering the execution of any alchemist found making counterfeit gold. But the arcane art was generally favored by royalty. In fact, Emperor... Zenzong, <laughs> does that sound right? Yeah. Who reigned from 977 to 1022, established a laboratory in the Imperial Academy for his Taoist alchemist, Wang Ji, to practice and study alchemy. Wang Ji was successful in crafting and presenting alchemical gold and silver to the emperor, allegedly. Chinese alchemy would yield elixirs and cures for various illnesses, thus contributing to the emerging field of practical medicine. And fun fact with Chinese alchemy... Around 1000 AD, Chinese Taoist alchemists were attempting to uncover an elixir for immortality when they combined elemental sulfur, charcoal, and potassium nitrate together, accidentally inventing 
gunpowder. Whoa. Which changed the fucking world. Hell yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's why alchemy science, baby. Uh, I mean, it's obvious. Chemistry comes from the word alchemy. Yeah. We're going to switch now to Indian alchemy. Okay. The practice of alchemy in the Indian subcontinent played out similarly to East Asian alchemy that popped off in China. The key interests were gold and longevity. In the way of longevity, Indian alchemy could be broadly characterized as resembling medicine more closely. There were extensive alchemical studies that revolved around medicine forms of mercury, preserving one's health and ultimately vitalizing the body so that it cannot decay. The practices and philosophies behind Indian alchemy greatly influenced traditional Indian medicine. The earliest traces of alchemy can be found in the oldest Hindu scriptures known as the Vedas. And it was first practiced during the preparation of life elixirs, as well as ancient metallurgy. Mm. Throughout key Sanskrit texts, there are eight metals of sacred significance that were used when casting metal religious idols that would be displayed in Jain and Hindu temples across India. The metals combined in what was called the octo-alloy are zinc, tin, copper, silver, gold, iron, lead, and mercury. These sacred metals were also experimented with by alchemists. So these were always magical metals. Like I just said, they used them for special idols in temples. And then they also started using them to like make weird shit as alchemists, Mm -hmm. like consumable things. So in 325 BC, India was invaded by Alexander the Great and his forces. The invasion led to the longstanding Greek state of Gandhara, now northwest Pakistan. During this period, it's theorized that Indian and Greek alchemy collided, influencing each other in some way. However, historians are unclear which culture influenced which to a greater degree. And then Western alchemy is where I'm my last little bit. Mm-hmm. This is kind of all over the place because it's a way harder to define because it's like across every Western culture. Right, right. It's like ghosts. What are ghosts? I don't know. It's exactly like ghosts. Thank you. You're welcome. Finally, I've been saying this for years. <laughs> alchemy, just like ghosts. It's like ghosts. What even are they? Are you evil? Are you you evil? (laughs) Uh, Should I explain that reference? Yeah, go ahead. If you are unfamiliar with the hit TV show Ghost Adventures, um, please acquaint yourself because it is the best show on television. It is these group of three guys who are paranormal investigators and they go to various haunted places, but they go about investigating in an unconventional way because they try and provoke the spirits by yelling at them and stuff to try and get responses. Yeah. Hoping that being abrasive and rude will cause them to like attack them or something. Yeah. Anyways, it's very ridiculous. It's very comical because of how serious they're taking it and Mm -hmm. how like unserious it ends up being. (laughs) I don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but there, there was a scene I was watching when they went to the Lizzie Borden house and they were very convinced that Lizzie Borden didn't kill her parents. And it was, in fact, a demonic entity in the house. Of course. That, that was causing the murders and that she was possessed by, by this demonic entity. So they were going around the house and all of these people were like, oh, yeah, it was, it was probably most definitely Lizzie. And he's like, was it or was it a demonic entity? And people would be like, um, well, I mean, I guess it could have been. <laughs> yeah, it could have been anything. But but they have this device where if there's a disruption in the electromagnetic field around it, it beeps. And the theory is that ghosts disrupt the electromagnetic field. So if there's one nearby, the device beeps and, oh, you know, if there's a, there's a ghost. So they can communicate through that device. 
And so he's asking these ghost questions and he's like, are you male or female? One beep for male, two beeps for female. And it just like beeps for a really long time. And he just starts yelling at it like, stop, (laughs) stop. Are you a male or a female spirit? Once for a male, twice for a female. Stop it. Stop. Stop. Wait till I ask a question. Are you evil? Are you evil? <laughs> One beep for yes, two beeps for no. <laughs> have you been watching a lot of that lately? I have, yeah. The, the host, Zach Baggins, <laughs> is like, he is the last man carrying the torch for like Ed Hardy. <laughs> and like insane hair gel. It is, yeah. Spiked up faux hawk. He is the 2010s. Personified. Uh, living museum to the 2010s. Yeah, 2010s yes. douche. Like the bedazzled jeans. Tight black shirts. Yes. Huge baggy jeans, bedazzled, comically large belts. Like it <laughs> yeah. looks like a, it looks like a WWE championship belt. <laughs> <laughs> and almost every episode, he finds a way to become possessed. Yes. That was my favorite part is like he is such an attention whore that like you say it's three guys. It's really Zach Baggins and his human slaves. Because he just makes them go into scary rooms and closes the door. Yeah. And anytime they find something, they're like, oh, wow, I just picked up this crazy thing. Zach has to one up them. He goes, I heard something too. <laughs> or he'll be like, oh, I'm feeling kind of funny. Right. And <laughs> you guys might want to stand back. It just like cuts to him and he's just like dissociating. Oh, no. He's smiling and looking side to side. He must be possessed. And he goes like, <laughs> I don't know what came over me. Something dark was here. And he always like takes off his shirt. And there's like a scratch on his back or something. Oh, my God. It's a trip. I just started like on season six. Yeah. Because I've, there's like over 20 seasons now. We were looking for something Halloween-ish to watch in October, and um, I turned it on, and uh, I knew what to expect, but my girlfriend didn't, obviously. I'm watching it, and I'm like, this is awesome. Aren't you loving this? Like, obviously, <laughs> I know that she fucking hates it, like, immediately. It, if It's a bunch of dudes, like, yelling at ghosts. And then every time Zach Baggins <laughs> got into screen, she would just be like, ugh, what, what even, what is he trying to do here? What's he wearing? <laughs> Fucking love that show. It's the most divisive show. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Western alchemy. I guess we'll start in Egypt. Alchemy also has roots in Greek and Roman Egypt. A ton. So many roots. Egypt um, was also like uh, <laughs> controlled by multiple different empires. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't just the ancient Egyptians. It was like Roman Egypt, Greek Egypt. You know, like it was, it's a super old place. Yeah. The history goes way back. So alchemy has roots in Greek and Roman Egypt and nearby Babylonia, Egyptian alchemy may have spawned from the ancients' fascination with, you guessed it, gold. Hey. Can I get a hell yeah? Hell yeah. There we go. As pure gold is virtually indestructible, immune to corrosion, rust, and tarnish, today we know for a fact that gold can't be destroyed on a molecular level with any natural occurring substance on Earth. So it's, it's kind of special. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know how they would have known that. Like... Most of that they wouldn't have known then. They just know that it was shiny, it was luminous. Mm-hmm. It didn't tarnish or... Many Egyptian alchemists considered gold to be magical and divine. Its density and luminous yellow color no doubt added to its reputation, earning nicknames like Tears of the Sun or Sweat of the Sun. Aye. The ancient Egyptians, as well as the Babylonians, are considered the first civilizations to conduct scientific experiments on gold, particularly 
the alchemical pursuit of producing gold from base metals. And base metals, you hear about this all throughout alchemy. Base metals are just non-precious metals. Copper, lead, nickel, tin, aluminum, and zinc are the core base metals. Mm -hmm. Most of what we know about the origins of alchemy in ancient Egypt comes from the works of Greco-Egyptian and mystic Zosimos of Panopolis, who based his knowledge on alchemist authors that came before him. These are people that we really don't have much written surviving stuff on, but he carried over with his knowledge and put it to paper. So I'm assuming what he wrote, which is for the most part our, our only surviving like evidence of these people, these early alchemists, is probably also drenched in like years of urban legend. You know how things get like mm -hmm. more fantastical the longer they're told orally. Right. These authors that came before him, for example, Mary the prophetess who lived between the 1st and 3rd centuries AD. Although her life and discoveries survived mostly through Zosimos' writings, Mary is considered the first true alchemist of the Western world. I threw this in there for the girl bosses out there to remind you to never stop grinding. <laughs> and it's wine o'clock somewhere. <laughs> so Mary personified the metals she studied, assigning each attributes, including bodies, souls, and spirits. Likewise, she described the metals as having two different genders, masculine and feminine. Putting aside the fact that this theory, you know, completely owns the liberals <laughs> <laughs> uh, by uh, the horrific claim that there are only two genders, uh, Mary claimed that by joining the two genders through primitive chemistry and metallurgy, one could create an entirely new substance. Someone should tell the French. What's that? Someone should tell the French. It's like in their language, they have like masculine and feminine and like chairs are like masculine and tables are feminine. So boom. What? Yeah. Combine that shit. Chairs are masculine? I don't remember if it's chairs are literally masculine, but yes, all objects are either masculine or feminine. Okay. Yeah. I mean, tables are kind of womanly. Are they? Well, it's like a big mama that gives you food. <laughs> and they're penetrated by chairs. And that's, what, oh yes. Yeah. Chairs have to be masculine. Chairs tuck into it like, like wieners. Oh shit, they do. Oh my god. They got it from the Egyptians. Oh my god. Uh, Zosimos explained the basics of the alchemical arts, which he called tinctures. According to him, in ancient Egyptians, they didn't call them like potions or alchemy. It was all tinctures. Mm -hmm. He claimed that alchemy in ancient Egypt had been monopolized by, quote, demons, who he described as guardians of places, who only passed on their knowledge to those who offered them sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Now, historians have interpreted Zosimos' words to refer to the old Egyptian gods and their priests. Okay. So he probably yeah. didn't recognize them. He calls them demons. <laughs> so regardless of who these demons truly were, Zosimos believed they made up a cruel faction of evil forces whose sole purpose was to keep mankind in a haze of ignorance and eternal suffering. Zosimos is relevant for infinite reasons, but one interesting detail about his work with alchemy is that he is considered the first alchemist to write about the Philosopher's Stone. Ooh. That's right. A mythical substance capable of transmuting base metals into gold or silver. This is where I'm, I'm going to leave Western alchemy here because I wanted to keep it kind of brief and also like end with the Philosopher's Stone. Right. So. Right. As we've mentioned, one major goal of alchemists across time has been to discover a precise and efficient alchemical process for generating wealth, in this case, precious metals like gold. Alchemists would slave over their workstations, tinkering with proto-chemistry sets as they experimented on any metals and natural substances they could readily access, burning, melting, breaking, and merging various elements together, praying they'd stumble upon a formula for gold. 
The Philosopher's Stone was that evasive, mythical substance that through careful practice could turn any metal it interacted with into gold. Today we can for the most part confidently say that there is no Philosopher's Stone, at least not in a literal physical form. As most evident in Western alchemy, Gnostic mysticism became closely intertwined with the teachings and practices of the arcane art. Some historians and occult scholars suggest that the Philosopher's Stone should be viewed not as a literal substance, but a symbol or metaphor for spiritual accomplishment and revelation. So I'm just going to be looking at it as a physical object from here on out. While the earliest written mention of the stone was from Zosimos, circa 300 AD, Later alchemical writers claim that the concept of the Philosopher's Stone was originally taught to Adam from God. The stone was said to possess many properties and effects, including longevity. The Adam origin story seems to function as a way to explain the long lifespans of biblical patriarchs in the Old and New Testaments. Hmm. As mentioned in Genesis 5, the book of Generations of Adam, Adam lived to be 930 years old, one of his sons Cain lived to be 730 and his other son, Seth, was 912, and all the offsprings leading up to Noah were like 700 years old in the Bible. That's what it says in the Bible, at least. So just how many mystical properties did this stone possess? Here are the group of whatever. So transmute <laughs> it can transmute base metals into gold and silver, heal all forms of illness, prolong human life. This could be accomplished by consuming wine that had a small portion of the stone, which had been grounded and dissolved into it. There's general physical revitalization slash age reversal. Mm -hmm. It could turn basic rocks into gemstones, help fertilize barren land, allow one to speak with animals. Some versions went as far as allowing the user to speak with angels and demons. Apparently, it could be used to create malleable glass and eternally burning lamps. And also, it could be used to create one's clone or homunculus. Wow. You know what a homunculus is? I'm imagining it's a hunky man. It's like a little, it's like, it's like a little version of you. What? It's like a little strange you, but like, it's not you tiny. It's like, it's like a living totem that looks just like you, but is smaller and weirder looking. I don't want that. It's like a mini me. It's like an Austin Powers mini me to Dr. Evil. Mm -hmm. That's his little homunculus. I don't want that. I think it's hilarious. A little version of me running around. Looks like a little Neanderthal. <laughs> <laughs> you could do so many pranks. Just, what are you doing, little Jay? We were actually a conjoined twin at one point, but they cut this one off and then they just stopped growing. That's what I would tell people. But they kept him and he's alive. The foundation of the stone's creation can also be traced back to Greek philosophy, especially the works of Plato, in which Plato lays out the four basic elements of nature, air, earth, fire, and water, and claims that each derives from the prima materia, or first matter, an original mother element from which all elements were made from. In past episodes, we've discussed how many, if not all, creation myths explain how the world was born from like a singular entity or material that's usually chaos. Mm -hmm. Plato's theory was that the mysterious chaos element spawned all other natural elements, and the term prima materia was used by alchemists when referring to the first key ingredient needed to create the philosopher's stone. One theory was like, where do you find this element? If someone's like, well, it's inside of all of us. You can, you have to find mm -hmm. it inside of you. And what part of you does it exist in? Ancient and medieval philosophers theorized it could be extracted from one's hair, sweat, or poop. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, no philosophers were able to extract the first matter from any of these gross things. Oh. And that's tragic. I mean, if they're just looking for chaos, I have some X's I could give their number to. And I got a lot of poop I could give them. <laughs> 
In the words of 17th century alchemist Thomas Vaughan, the first matter of the stone is the very same with the first matter of all things. In the Middle Ages, Muslim alchemists followed Plato's logic. One 8th century alchemist, Jabir ibn Hayyan, boiled down the four elements to basic qualities. Air was hot and moist, earth was cold and dry, fire was hot and dry, and water was cold and moist. Jabir theorized that every metal was a combination of these four classifications. Therefore, the transmutation of one metal into another could occur by rearranging the quality slash classifications in any given metal. Jabir believed that the qualities of one or more metals could be changed by introducing a legendary red powder to various metals. The substance, now called red sulfur, was said to be sourced from the Philosopher's Stone and was known by the Arabic name Al-Iqsir, which is where we get the word elixir, which is neat. <laughs> Jabir never officially obtained red sulfur, but merely wrote of it theoretically. Jabir's alchemical works are immense and historically significant as it built off of ancient Greek alchemy, but ditched the popular use of allegory and symbology in favor of a coherent and systematic approach. Instead of exclusively focusing on mineral substances, Jabir pioneered the use of vegetables and animal byproducts, which gave way to organic chemistry. And his alleged works went on to influence astronomy, pharmacology, botany, chemistry, all that kind of stuff. But a lot of his stuff has been lost to time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. So like in the Eastern area, alchemy kind of took the root of spiritual ascension, long life in the form of, you know, transcending, so to speak. And then Egyptians, it was metal. They want to turn everything into gold. And then for Europeans, they want everything. Yeah. Do the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They're not satisfied with just one thing. No. It's also, too, they were the youngest of all of these civilizations. So like everything trickled down to them. So they got mm -hmm. each culture's different beliefs and they kind of put it all together into the stone. Right. So in terms of people who have claim to find the stone. There's two that I'll mention real quick. The 13th century German bishop slash philosopher slash scientist slash general stone enthusiast <laughs> Albertus Magnus is rumored to have discovered the formula for the philosopher's stone. St. Albert the Great made many scientific advancements in his day, specifically in embryology, which is you know, the study of embryos and egg fertilization. Mm -hmm. Albert was one of the first to accurately identify organs within animal eggs. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's crazy. I guess he was the first person to like put a flashlight behind an egg. <laughs> As for alchemy, Albert didn't actually do much or care for alchemy. After his death, a famous alchemical text was falsely attributed to him because the actual authors thought it would be a clever marketing tactic. That being said, Albert did study minerals and published books on the topic. In his commentary titled De Mineral Mineralibus, Albert says he thinks stones have mystical powers, but does not elaborate further. However, Albert did publicly claim to have witnessed the creation of gold through transmutation. He said he was there when he watched somebody do it. Wow. Okay. So in conclusion, the legend of Albertus Magnus creating the Philosopher's Stone is totally bunk, but he did see gold transmute, and most importantly... The dude figured out that there's stuff inside of eggs. I mean, that's the main takeaway there. Yeah. We should all be so lucky. So lastly, the name you might recognize, Nicholas Flamel. <gasps> From Harry Potter. Yeah. So he's based on a real, real person. Wow. A 14th century scribe and manuscript seller named Nicholas Flamel, who centuries after his death became known as a legendary alchemist that uncovered the secrets of the Philosopher's Stone. Nicholas lived in Paris where he ran two shops and would marry a woman named Perinelle, 
who was a wealthy widow, and when she married Nicholas, she brought with her an inherited fortune from two deceased husbands. Both were rich as fuck. <laughs> so they got rich together very quickly. So the Flamels made a name for themselves as business magnates, property owners, and prolific philanthropists, helping finance churches and commissioning public sculptures. They were pretty well known for the most part because they were just wealthy people. Mm -hmm. Their wealth was exaggerated by later legends that claimed Nicholas Flamel had cracked the code to the Philosopher's Stone, and in doing so began a backyard enterprise of gold and silver transmutation. No proof that happened, but that's part of the legend. Mm -hmm. Additionally, legends claim that through the power of the stone, Nicholas and Perinel had achieved immortality. Legends also say Nicholas, this is the full story, is Nicholas purchased a mysterious 21-page book in around 1357, and the book perplexed Flamel with its odd language. Around 20 years onward, Nicholas traveled to Spain in hopes of having the text translated, and there he met a quote-unquote sage who recognized it as an original printing of the Book of Abramelin the Mage. This is a famous grimoire slash autobiography that includes the writings of Abraham of Worms, which is the worst name you could ever have. <laughs> and Abraham of Worms recounts his travels from Germany to Egypt, where he met an Egyptian mage who imparted esoteric knowledge to him, such as mystic secrets and an entire magic system. It's believed that part of these secrets included the Philosopher's Stone. Nicholas and his wife decoded the book over a number of years, eventually translating it and gaining the formula to the Philosopher's Stone. And by the 1380s, the Flamels were creating gold. Unfortunately, but predictably, historians have found little value in these legends, chalking it up to mm. hearsay or straight-up fantasy misattributed to a wealthy and studious book collector, all snowballing into a very pervasive urban legend. This is my theory. They found a book. Yeah. Right. They got rich really fast. So people were questioning why they took this book to Spain. They're like, hey, I want this translated. They translated it, figured out it was smut, like really good smut. Really good stuff. And they're like, what do I do with this? So they start selling it to people under, under the table. Right. Like you don't want your wife figuring out that you're reading a bunch of smut. But like people love that shit. So they sell it to everybody. Get rich way faster. No one knows why, because. It's secretive. They're not telling people they're selling smut. Yeah, it's underground. So all these theories come out. They must have figured out the Philosopher's Stone from this weird book. They keep hoarding this weird book. That has to be it. Magic. It's really the Philosopher's Bone. Yeah. So we know that the Flamels were not immortal as they were semi-public figures. So people saw them slipping into old age. The community knew them. Their graves can be found in Paris. There isn't even any evidence that Nicholas Flamel practiced alchemy or anything like it, the earliest paper choke that can be tracked between the Flamels and alchemy is in like 1620-something when a book fabricated a story of Nicholas having like a lifelong search for the Philosopher's Stone. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he had been dead for 200 years. So it just kind of came out of nowhere. But he wasn't Harry Potter. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, go Nicholas. And that's where I'm closing off here. Well, that's a good introduction into the entirety of the occult uh <laughs> yeah so alchemy plays a very large role in occultism um which is why we're talking about it in an alchemy episode uh jeremy mm -hmm. how much how would you describe the occult if you had to give a definition of what it is what would you say uh, i'm asking an impossible um, question yeah i know it's very difficult i would i would summarize it as the genre of like the unseen, mm -hmm. unseen forces, magic, spiritualism, stuff like that. 
Yeah. I, yeah. That's, symbols and shit. That's a good way to describe it. So like the occult broadly is known as the like accumulation of all these different ideas, like supernatural beliefs that don't fit in with organized religion or science. So you can think of things like magic, the idea of being one with God, like enlightenment type stuff, spells, alchemy mm -hmm. can also be considered an occult practice because it wasn't entirely mm. scientific and it also didn't really fit in with religion. So there are a lot of influences that made the occult what it is today. One of the major ones is something called Hermetic Kabbalah. If you listen to our tarot episode, I talked about the Kabbalah quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> to summarize a very complicated thing, the Hermetic Kabbalah is this tradition, this idea of involving mysticism with the occult. So it's kind of like the basis of what we know as being Wiccan, like Wicca okay. and neo-paganism worshiping all these like different gods and things of magic and the incorporation of that with what we see and what we experience like on a day-to-day -day basis. You can think of it, the best analogy I can think of is Roswell and alien culture. Mm -hmm. So hermeticism to the occult is like Roswell to alien culture. Like Roswell kind of started a lot of it when a lot of people think of aliens now they kind of stem it to roswell mm -hmm. that's when a lot of it came about and a lot of people wrote stories their own personal experiences and it kind of exploded from there but a lot of those stories are based off of what happened at roswell so the analogy i'm trying to make is that hermeticism is a very important idea a category of ideas that the occult is based on now You've likely heard of Hermeticism before, but you might not have known that it was Hermeticism because it's very important in different organizations like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn mm -hmm. and things like the Freemasons. So the Hermetic Order is a society that taught alchemy, the Kabbalah, the magic of Hermes, the principles of occult science. It was a high secrecy society. So you could only be admitted if like you knew someone kind of thing. Like it was very hush hush mm -hmm. and there were really severe penalties if you told anyone about the secrets of the society. Because if you think, if you're trying to develop this elixir to live forever, you don't want everyone to know about it. Right. You know? And they were very serious about this kind of stuff. Uh, that's so weird. Like that specifically, like how does that start? Oh, I'm going to talk about oh, you it. you are? Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the whole rundown. A fun little fun fact, because I have to mention mm -hmm. him in at least every single episode. Alistair Crowley. <gasps> Dad. Was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And he was the first person to expose their secrets. There were only two in the entire history of the organization. He was the first one. Yeah. He was also the first person to ever um, perform a Dirty Sanchez as well. It's fucking disgusting. <laughs> he talked about it. Huge no-no. It's the major no-no, right? Like, you don't talk about Fight Club. Mm -hmm. And 1905, and he was kicked out. <laughs> the, the cool thing about the Golden Dawn, it's very similar to the Freemasons, very, like, exclusive, but it was open to anyone, including women. Whoa. Freemasons was a, a man-only 
organization. Yeah. But anyone could join the the Golden Dawn. It was very progressive in that way. They wanted ideas from everyone. They wanted to come up with all of these different, you know, ideas and things. And they felt like anyone could contribute in a, a significant way. Okay. So hermeticism. What the fuck is it? I just mentioned it a lot. It's basically like a group of philosophical and religious systems based on the teachings of a figurehead. The hermit. <laughs> kind of, basically. Hermes. <gasps> Trismegatus. I'm going to call him Hermes because I don't want to ever say that last name again. Please. There was a figurehead of this guy named Hermes Tris. Trismegatris. Uh, <laughs> that kickstarted this whole thing. And Hermeticism started and emerged in parallel with Christianity, Gnosticism, and like other major thought beliefs. Mm -hmm. So it held like a really significant place in a lot of people. Hermes is a figure that's a combination of Hermes, the Greek god. He's like the herald of the gods, like kind of like the messenger, if you think about it that way. He's mm -hmm. like the guy with the little wings on his feet. Yeah. If you ever watch Hercules and Thoth, Thoth is the Egyptian god of the moon, wisdom, and knowledge. We also talked about him in the tarot episode quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And it said that Hermes, Triskai, had the combined knowledge of these two gods. Combining the two gave him the knowledge of the material and spiritual world. And the people interested in that relationship of the material and the divine took special interest in Hermes. And so there's this large body of text called the Hermetica that are attributed to him. And you kind of touched on it where people would write stuff and attribute it to someone else. Yeah. Even though they didn't actually write it. Right. It was the same thing with this guy. A lot of people would write these teachings and these ideas and attribute it to this Hermes guy, this figure, even though like that person, that figure had didn't literally write it. Okay. But this large group of texts are attributing it to him. So that's like the basis of this thought belief, all of these texts that you find. And they all originated in Greek and Egypt. So... They were really popular. They had a lot of prestige and alchemists fucking loved that shit. They were generally split up into two different groups. You would have like a technical side where it talked about things like alchemy and medicine and astrology. Then you had a religious philosophical group that talked about the relationship between humans, the cosmos and God. So you have like a spiritual side and then you have more of like a physical side. Okay, yeah. Just just like in alchemy. Yeah, just just like in alchemy. The stuff we were just talking about. For the like religious philosophical side, people talk about the way of Hermes, which is basically leading to spiritual rebirth and heavenly ascent, which is a big thing in a lot of occultism. Yeah. A lot of goals of occult practices is ascending or, you know, becoming a higher being elevating your consciousness and your subconscious self yeah and aligning it to the cosmos it's the reason you're there yeah like your purpose on earth is to figure out who you are and how to ascend if that makes sense and a lot of these ideas come from hermeticism the hermetic tradition refers to alchemy magic astrology and all these like related subjects and a fun fact 
hermetically sealed comes from the alchemy procedure to make the philosopher's stone. Oh. The procedure, yeah, came from hermeticism because it taught alchemy. And the philosopher's stone, as you described, is like the elixir of life. It can turn, you know, metals like lead into gold or silver. Mm-hmm. So sealing that concoction is called a hermetic seal, which is still something we use right now. So hermetic literature and Egypt focused on conjuring spirits and animating statues. That's cool. Yeah. A lot of the text influenced the oldest writings on astrology and alchemy. So if you remember astrology that we talked about in the tarot episode as well, a lot of that comes from Egyptians. A lot of those teachings come from Egyptians, and Mm -hmm. those teachings came from hermetic texts. The philosophy, on the other hand, kind of started to give way to religious cult practices, the whole idea of offering ascension from their physical being, like, oh, if you come and follow my teachings, then you can become one with God. You just have to pay me a lot of money. Scientology. (laughs) Exactly. Literally climbing the bridge or whatever. Exactly. Like, you're not ready for the truth, but eventually you will be, and as you progress... I will unveil more and more secrets and more and more truths to you, which is basically saying uh, (laughs) the full story is so fucking crazy. There's no way you'll believe it until you become so indoctrinated (laughs) that you have to. You know, it's like the yes, yes. Once you invest so much, you you don't want to turn away, kind of thing. I can't remember what that's called. Like it's the uh, what is is it the frog boiling a frog. Yeah, something like that. It's like you put if you put the frog in the water. Is it frog? Maybe it might be maybe lobster. I don't fucking know. But you put this thing, <laughs> an animal you're cooking, you boil it in water. I think it's frog. If you put it in the water before it starts to boil, it begins to acclimate and it won't jump out. It'll just boil to death. But if you drop mm-hmm. a frog into boiling water, it'll jump out and you can't cook it. There you so go. The same thing yeah. with this. It's like we need to condition you before we need to groom you so that you really buy into what I'm saying. Exactly. Hey, wait a second. Do this stuff while I figure out how I can lie to you and get all your money. Exactly. Yeah. There is a historian and professor who had a quote that I thought was very fun and interesting. His name is Giles Quispell. And he says, it is now completely certain that there existed a secret society akin to the Masonic Lodge. The members of this group called themselves Brethren were initiated through a baptism of the spirit, greeted each other with a sacred kiss celebrated a sacred meal and read the hermetic writings for their spiritual progress that's really cute yeah it's like it's it's a whole fucking thing that sounds sweet all these people believed like they read these texts they read these teachings believed in it so heavily they they created these secret societies those eventually kind of gave away but those teachings and the ideas stayed with us as a society and they kind of have evolved and adapted into what we know as like the occult today. And Mm -hmm. all of it kind of stemmed from alchemy and the ideas of alchemy. You know, like if you think of what you were saying about Chinese alchemy in particular, that spiritual progression, that spiritual ascension, that's kind of what this is talking about in a very broad sense. In Hermetica, God is also referred to as the ultimate reality, the mind, the creator, the all, the one, and others. So while some may have seen it as a literal being, like a god, others it was more of a broad something having control over our perceived reality. 
if that makes sense. It was some sort of force. It was a force, right? Like a Jedi. It's crazy how conceptual this stuff is for back then when like common people at the time were not thinking anywhere near this. So you got to assume these are probably also like the upper class, highly educated people mm-hmm. or like private education, whatever. Because like right. the concept that God is a reality. I don't see people 50 years ago getting that, let alone like way back when. Right. Heady stuff. For like a lot of history, that would have been seen as blasphemous. Like you would yeah, have been killed for, for saying stuff like that. 100%. It's like another reason why the secrecy was so important because you can't talk about this kind of stuff openly. A lot of the population were uneducated and probably wouldn't have understood. And so that need for camaraderie mm-hmm. and people who would understand was really important and why Aleister Crowley is such a fucking asshole. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> There's so many reasons why he's an asshole. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the Emerald Tablet? I didn't look into it, but it was it was in my notes. Yeah, so the, the Emerald Tablet, for the people who don't know, is like the oldest writing of Hermeticism mm-hmm. that, that we have available. It's a huge piece of um, Shit. stone engraving, and it's fucking cool. But in the Emerald Tablet is where we see the phrase as above, so below, which is very important for a lot of occultism today and a lot of occult ideology. Yeah. The general idea for as above, so below is what is in the cosmos, what is in the stars and space with God also exists with humans. What is in the cosmos is in us as well. It's the idea of that everything's connected and everything's related and what may appear to be separate isn't really. That's so cool. I love that shit. So fucking cool. <laughs> Again, the idea that God is the all, the creator of the all, the nature of the cosmos was key in the spiritual teachings of, of Hermeticism. Yeah. And it said that there are three parts of the wisdom of the whole universe. This is from the Emerald Tablet, referring to three disciplines known to and taught by Hermes Trismegatus. First one is alchemy. It was very core, very important. And it was also referred to as the operation of the sun. It is generally the investigation into the spiritual life of matter and material existence through the applications of birth, death, and resurrection. So how can you kill certain metals? How can you like rebirth it? How can you transmute it into the beginning of something else? It uses different stages of chemical methods like fermentation or distillation to bring a natural body to perfection. So we're starting with something rough like lead and we're bringing it to gold, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, indestructible, doesn't tarnish. This perfection is the accomplishment of what's called the great work in alchemy. The great work is a term used to symbolize the creation of the philosopher's stone. It's the accumulation of the spiritual path, attainment of enlightenment, or the rescue of the human soul from the unconscious forces that bind it. So through alchemy, like you described in all the different areas of the world, you get different things. You get the philosopher's stone, you get enlightenment, you get gold through this great work. Another discipline was astrology, which, of course, is the movements of planets that influence the Earth. I won't dive into that too much. We also have theology. 
It's also called The Operation of the Gods, which sounds like a really cool spy movie mission. Yeah. As <laughs> one of the two different kinds of magic. So there's Goetia, uh, which is black magic reliant on evil spirits. So if you think of things like European sorcery or like witchcraft was thought to be evil. Mm -hmm. And there's also theology, which is divine magic that relied on divine spirits. Alchemy is seen as a divine magic, the ultimate goal being that you become united with higher counterparts, divine consciousness. And it's really interesting because Hermeticism was so widespread that the Christian church actually put stock in it. It was like endorsed by the Christian church because it does have that tie to like religious ideology. Mm -hmm. But there was a point where it encouraged individual thinking too much. Yeah, that, <laughs> right, right. That it was no longer endorsed by the Christian church. And that was when it was really driven underground and when several hermetic societies were formed. So that's when you're seeing like Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Hermetic magic also had a revival in the 19th century in Europe which is really interesting itself. The Magus, which you mentioned, was published during this time and was a handbook of ceremonial magic. The French esotericist Ephelis Levi took interest in this, and he was like a really prolific guy during this time. His innovations attributed Hebrew letters to the tarot cards, which, you know, is very commonplace now. I think we talked about this in the tarot episode. Yeah. So he influenced a lot. And he made a link between Western magic and Jewish esotericism, which is now fundamental to things like tarot. Mm -hmm. And a, another fun fact, Aleister Crowley actually thought of himself as Levi's reincarnation. He sucks. <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, he did. Yeah, he's never just like, I was a dude in a past life. It's like, I was the most important dude. <laughs> and I'll leave it off on this. Different types of hermetic magic. Because we have to. Sex magic. Yeah. At least according to Aleister Crowley and Carl Kellner, which was the founder of Ordo Templi Orientis, or O-T-O. Oh, yeah. I know O-T-O. Yeah, that's a big they one. They still have lodges in America. It's crazy. Yeah. That's an interesting organization. We should maybe talk about that one sometime. The structure of O-T-O is very similar to Scientology. Like I mentioned earlier, though, like you can't handle the full truth yet. So we're going to give you little pieces until you become mm -hmm. so invested that you believe all the shit that we tell you later. And Aleister Crowley ended up becoming the leader <laughs> of OTO after he was kicked out of the Golden Dawn. <laughs> he needed something. He had to be the leader of some fucked up thing. Yes. And they called these different level ups trials. Mm -hmm. And those have heavy influences from tarot. So the first set of trials is called the Man of Earth Triad, and you are trying to reach the level of the Master Magician. If you're not familiar with the tarot, go listen to our tarot episode. But the Magician is said to be the master of all elements, you know, fire, earth, air, water, and they have the ability to get anything that they want. They can make anything they want. They're kind of like the master of manifestation. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of abundance. And I think that's really interesting that they model it after that. There's also a knight triad. Knights are <laughs> ambitious and goal-oriented in the tarot, very driven. And then it moves to the lovers triad. Lovers has this 
common misconception that it is literally romantic, but that's not necessarily the case. And the tarot, the lover's card, usually has to deal with decision making. Okay. And trying to like decide between different things. And then the last one is the hermit's triad. The hermit and tarot has to do with self-reflection. Um, usually it deals with a period of self-isolation or sitting with yourself and thinking about like where you're at, what you want to do, you know, kind of big self-reflection mm -hmm. type of thing. So it's kind of interesting that they they incorporated that into the, the structure, but also heavily based off hermeticism and old like hermetic teachings. Magic has a significant transformation in general throughout history. In medieval stories, magic was very fantastical and fairy-like. In the Renaissance, it turned into the idea of hidden knowledge that could be explored through books and rituals. Right. And this idea of you can ascend and like, you know, figure out these innate things about nature and yourself and have sex and then come on parchment. Yeah, that's the <laughs> ultimate goal. That That's modern. Modern <laughs> magic is coming on parchment. Yes. So that people eventually give you a lot of money to talk about aliens. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> American dream. But that's what I have for alchemy and occultism and hermeticism. It's kind of a very broad overview, but it's very interesting. I think how it's all really related with itself and how old it is. Yeah. And it all, it all starts with a little, a little guy named Hermes. Little Hermes. A little homunculus. Law Hermes gave us alchemy and magic and Aleister Crowley. Who we really need to cover soon. Yes, I agree. Good stuff, crazy stuff, old stuff. So I'm assuming that hermeticism is like related to Gnostics? It's, yeah, it's related. Right, sort of has to. They came about during the same time. Yeah. They are different. They're not, they're not quite the same. Well, okay. I have no idea how to wrap up from this point because we got we have been talking about such <laughs> archaic things. Interesting things. Well, we can do our good vibes. My good vibes is that I'm doing stand-up comedy now and it's a lot of fun and I enjoy it. And succeeding. Do, doing pretty well. To do that right off the bat is not common. Thank you. Or knock on wood. I don't want to, you know, whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> my good vibe is not that good but i it's relevant i should have mentioned it earlier but it was a lot of fun I i've seen officially the entire twilight saga nice and wow there's a lot to unpack there what was your opinion on because last time we talked about this i think you had only seen the first one what was your opinion on all of them give your like cliff notes <sighs> okay. thoughts all right opinions. twilight the first one i thought was the best mm -hmm. none of them were good <laughs> I would say they were all pretty much garbage. The first one had mm -hmm. some mood in it. It had some dark kind of interesting aesthetic. The rest were uh, I, just not good at all. I, my favorite was Breaking Dawn Part 1. Okay. Just because of how fucked up that movie is. That movie is actually disgusting. <laughs> that movie is anti-woman. That movie is a bunch of fundamentalist stuff disguised as like fun, romantic vampire stuff. It was nauseating. I was shocked watching it, how this movie was popular with teenagers, like with young women, because it was so mm -hmm. brutal and like 
her that's the one where she like gets pregnant oh yeah yeah and she gets like emaciated she looks fucking disgusting and she breaks her ribs because the baby's kicking they're like we need to get this baby out of you and she goes oh no they basically imply like you should probably get an abortion and then she goes no i could never do that this is my purpose (sighs) right out the gate this is my purpose to die in childbirth and so they bite her neck to make her live and stuff and it's like if you go back and watch breaking dawn part one my God, that's a disgusting movie. Mm-hmm. But I also was laughing so hard at how fucking repulsive and insane it was. So, yeah. And I hate J- Jacob as my... As, I hate all the characters so much. <laughs> Jacob's whole... Jacob's pedophile relationship with the baby. So weird. Incredibly problematic. Like, like not even... So weird. Not even like a... It was okay at the time. No. <laughs> that was so heavily pedophile coded. Dude, I felt like a crazy person because I'm like, how <laughs> have I not heard about how fucking insane these movies get? Yeah. I loved it. Honestly, I did love it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All of it because it was so bad. It was a hate watch. So I guess that's my good vibe. It's insane. I made Flo watch them with me for the first time uh, like a year ago. Mm-hmm. And they had a very similar <laughs> reaction where they hated it. Like they hated it, but we had to keep watching. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, we had to pause several times. I just paced the room. Yes. Yes. I was yep. like, okay, okay. Oof. It's the Twilight experience. Can I have a similar, like I just watched all the saws for the first time since. <laughs> yeah. Th- like the first one came. I think I, I only saw the first and second one originally and i'm not a body horror person so i never really cared to watch the rest of them but it was like you know october halloween season and some of my friends (laughs) really wanted to watch them so i was like whatever they are so bad they're so ridiculous like so over the top some parts are gross but they're so unrealistic that i can't help but just laugh at it now okay there is a plot I'll use like finger quotes like there's a plot, <laughs> but it you will understand maybe 20 percent of it. I heard it gets pretty out there mm-hmm. based on the fact there's like 20 of them. I bet they're horrible. Yeah, they're pretty bad. And like they keep doing the thing where they didn't expect it to get that far. So they have to like do a bunch of flashbacks <laughs> to like address <laughs> right, right, right. plot holes. But it just ends up making it so confusing. Yeah, it's very fun. That's what I'll leave you off on. Make sure you go watch Twilight. Go watch all the saws. Yeah. Just because Halloween's over doesn't mean you got to stop watching... Shitty things. Spooky movies. I wouldn't call Twilight spooky. I would barely call Twilight a vampire movie, if I'm honest. It's scary because someone wrote that. Yeah, yeah. It's scary (laughs) because it got greenlit. It's scary because it broke records internationally. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, like the Twilight series, that informed... A generation of women's expectations for romance and life. Yes, yes. And it's so scary and fucked up. And I found out that the author was Mormon. Was she really? I didn't know that. And there's a bunch of Mormon-like themes in there. <sighs> Regardless, anyways. Anyways, thank you guys for listening to that. Um, <laughs> we hope you liked the episode. <laughs> and thank you again to our patrons for voting on it. If you want to vote on our next episode topic, uh, give us money and we'll <laughs> listen to you. Uh, you can also email us at according to an idiot at gmail.com. Tell us your thoughts, opinions. If you have ideas, let us know. We love to hear it. You can stay up to date on all of our episodes and when they come out and other just like fun little fun little tidbit things by following us on Instagram and Facebook at according to an idiot and our Twitter. I've refused to call it the other thing no. at idiots accord. 
Our Patreon is, according to an idiot, we have early access to episodes, ad-free listening whenever we get ads back. (laughs) Um, You can vote on episode topics. We also have an exclusive creepypasta series that you can get only if you're a patron. We have a nice little teaser of one of the episodes, Jeff the Killer. Make sure you check that out. And that's it. Oh, vote it. V- rate us. Rate us on iTunes yes, and Spotify. Yes, rate us on iTunes and Spotify. Yes. It helps people find the show and lets us know that we're doing okay. Oh, we did get a review. We got a new review? Yeah, we got a new review. They said, this was from Mike. They said, wow, five stars. Love the podcast that Jeremy has a tight little body on him. More full body shots of Jeremy, please. Mm, I'm scared. <laughs> I don't think I sent that one to you, actually. Oh, what the fuck? Okay, cool. But we do plan on having some video recordings coming up soon. We're going to start by releasing little clips and stuff of our mini-sodes, maybe our creepy pastas, and eventually, hopefully, with our full-length episodes. So if that's something you're interested in, yeah. definitely let us know, because we'll, we'll probably do it. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. I will see you in time. Bye. I love you. <laughs>